Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime you don't have to hide how you feel witness docs from stitcher In 1999, an old woman named Maggie Sue Goodwin died in Marion, Arkansas. She'd lived a quiet life, had no children. She'd been a widow for three decades. And Maggie Sue's death probably would have gone unnoticed, except for one thing. She was rich, really rich. And she left a fortune worth $7 million to the Baptist church she'd attended for years. A local newspaper got a tip about the gift, ran a story, discovered that Maggie Sue's money was the largest bequest ever given to a Baptist church in Arkansas. And all this shocked the town of Marion. Not because Maggie Sue came out of nowhere. She'd actually lived there most of her life and worked as a teacher in the local school. It was just that no one knew she was a millionaire. Maggie Sue died almost half a century after Isidore Banks was lynched. And her fortune, much of it came from her late husband, a man named Cecil Goodwin. Cecil Goodwin was the sheriff in Crittenden County during the last decade of Eastor's life. And according to the census of 1940, his salary would have been just about $5,000 per year. As a teacher, Maggie Sue would have made much less. But when she died, the newspapers didn't really speculate about where her money came from. One described her as frugal, a woman who never bought things, never went anywhere. But $7 million? That goes way beyond frugal. A lot of people we talked to think that some of Maggie Sue's money had actually been Isidore's, and that maybe Sheriff Goodwin had killed him for it. I'm Taylor Hum. I'm Neil Shea. This is Unfinished, Deep South. Episode 2, The High Sheriff. When we first traveled to Crittenden County in 2017, we wanted to know about a past that was fading fast, to understand what life had been like here more than half a century ago. In the early 1950s, the county was quiet and rural, and some people described it to us as being like Mayberry. The fictional southern town featured in the Andy Griffith Show. Mayberry was a perfect little place where everyone knew everyone, no one locked their doors, Everybody went to church on Sunday. And the sheriff, the heart of the show, 
he kept the peace with a mix of country charm and folksy fairness. I don't carry a gun because I don't want the people of Mayberry to fear a gun. I'd rather they would respect me. That was beautifully said. In Crittenden County, white people described real-life Sheriff Cecil Goodwin that way. Respected. Folksy. Fair. He wore a khaki uniform, sometimes a big white hat. And he never carried a gun. Street signs in Crittenden County still bear his name. So does a plaque in the county courthouse and a Baptist church building built with his money. He was a, a good fellow. I think he was honest as he could be. Did he, did he have generally good relations with everybody? Yeah, real good, yeah. Everybody tried to say there was a lot of conflict, and there wasn't any trouble. You didn't see any. I guess the police chief and the sheriff kept everything in control. What kind of, what kind of guy was he? as fine as you'd want to find. And if you ask about that $7 million fortune, Goodwin and his wife earned that money the old-fashioned way, with hard work and solid investments. At least, that's what white folks say. But there's a problem with the Mayberry metaphor. Mayberry is just about the whitest town you could imagine. In nearly 250 episodes, stretched out across eight seasons, I could find just one line spoken by an African-American actor. So of course Mayberry was nothing like Crittenden County, because Crittenden County has a large African-American population. And to African-Americans who remember the county, and who remember Sheriff Goodwin, things look very different. What do you remember about the sheriff? He was no good to me. He He was something else. And when night fell, you could not be caught in a certain part of town. It just didn't happen. You went to jail and they beat your butt. He did what he wanted. Cecil Goodman was the law. There's a difference in being the sheriff and the law, okay? He took what he wanted. So your family sold it for a dollar to Goodwin? No, no, Goodwin just took it, took it out. They just pushed my folks off the land. And he made the system work for him. Black folk, I understood that black folk owned most of the farmland around Crittenden County. When did that start to change? When they got this new share. So, so people would go default on their taxes? No, nah, hell no. He just lied. Gilbert never really bought his that shit. He took stuff. Soon after Isidore was lynched, in June 1954, his daughter Morell stepped up to handle the family business. One day she went to the county courthouse to pay taxes on her father's land, but inside, at the collector's office, a clerk told her to keep her money because there was no land. Almost every surviving member of the Banks family knows this story. It's the moment the other shoe drops, when Morell realizes that everything her father owned was gone. But who took it? Some African-Americans we spoke to pointed to Sheriff Goodwin. But tracking down the truth of that is tough. Cecil and Maggie Sue had no children. All their close relatives are dead. Not many people left to carry a family secret. So we were surprised when we found someone who'd already looked into it. Her name is Margaret Burnham. She's a law professor at Northeastern University in Boston. 
and we caught up with her in a classroom full of students, where she told us about her deep dive into the story of Isidore Banks. 2011, we started the Banks case. They were in junior high school (laughs) at the time. (laughs) Today, Professor Burnham runs a program called the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project. She and her students research lynchings and other civil rights crimes. Back in 2011, Burnham learned about Isidore's case from his granddaughter, Marcelina Williams. And it looked promising. In Banks, there was some evidence that the sheriff of the county had accumulated a large amount of money, more money than would be justified by his position as sheriff. When you hear that kind of thing, your antenna naturally go up. Re-examining old civil rights cases is hard and frustrating work. The chances of convicting a killer or finding any kind of justice are usually pretty poor. But Professor Burnham is among the few who's beaten the odds. In 2011, she won compensation for the family of a lynching victim in Mississippi. She was able to show that that county sheriff had been involved. Professor Burnham thought she'd found a similar crime in Isidore's case. So she zeroed in on Sheriff Goodwin, found out about his fortune, and his reputation. And not only was he the sheriff, the law law enforcement officer for the town, but he's also the tax collector. That's a formula for disaster. Combining those two jobs was common in the South. But Professor Burnham says putting so much power into one man's hands led to loads of corruption. So you could have these counties, Britain County is classic. Majority black county, people owning their land, living their lives, with no ability to influence the political reality under which they live. And so when that's true, and you also combine that with the sheriff who is the tax collector for the town and and the law enforcement official in the town, you're at the mercy of the sheriff. Sheriffs could forge tax receipts or pocket tax payments. They could use their influence to lower tax assessments for their pals or raise them on people they didn't like. If you were late with a payment, the sheriff could cut you a break, or he could seize your land. His call. And scholars have found evidence of sheriffs doing all those things in towns across the South. When Morell, Isidore's oldest daughter, went to the courthouse to pay that tax bill we mentioned after Isidore was lynched, she was going to pay Sheriff Goodwin. And it was his clerk who told Morell that her father's land was gone. He told her that Isidore had sold it all before he was killed. Nobody in Isidore's family believed that, and neither does Professor Burnham. The question for us is, uh, was this also related to the longstanding complaint made by Banks' family and many other African Americans in Crittenden County that they were losing their land because they had been unable to pay taxes, and the sheriff was thereby becoming wealthier and wealthier at the expense of black landholders, then that to us suggested a practice and a a policy and perhaps a custom in the county that clearly affected Isidore Banks and other black uh, landholders in the county. For generations, African-American families lost their land in places like Crittenden County to officials like Sheriff Goodwin. In 1910, African-American farmers across the country, but mostly in the South, owned more than 15 million acres of land. By 1992, 
they own just 2.3 million. Scholars say that incredible drop was fueled largely by fraud, corruption, and theft. Professor Burnham suspected that Sheriff Goodwin had targeted Isidore, brought the weight of his office down on him. So she and her students went to Marion. They tracked Maggie Sue's money to the Baptist church, poured over land deeds and tax records. But before Burnham could find evidence that might hold up in court, she ran out of funding and had to stop her investigation. Eight years later, we picked up where she and her team left off, in the basement of the Crittenden County Courthouse. Hi. Yeah, I just called. I don't know if I spoke to you, but I'm a journalist who's called about old oh, yeah. records. Old yeah. yeah. This courthouse, it wasn't just where trials happened. Throughout the South, courthouses were kind of a one-stop shop for a lot of life's business. They still are. You sign deeds here, settle debts, get married or divorced. In Isidore's day, it was also the place you paid taxes. And those records are still here, in a dank, mildewy vault. Or at least, some of them are. What years? 1916. We spent a lot of time in the basement looking for Isidore's name. And most of our visits were frustrating, because the basement is kind of a dump. First one I'm going for is missing. Just skips over the number. The ceiling is leaking. There's mold all over the place. People warned us to wear masks. The clerk just told me, if you find any books that are wrapped in saran wrap, don't touch them, because I have to leave them wrapped for three years to kill the mold. And a lot of what we wanted was missing, including all the sheriff's files before 1975, which had apparently been destroyed in a flood of sewage. It's a bank's claim and... Yes, thanks. And it's just missing. Every so often, we'd come upstairs to shake off the dust and get some fresh air. And when we stood on the courthouse steps, looking past the magnolia trees, past the monument to the Confederate dead, we could almost see where Isidore and Sheriff Goodwin had lived. Their houses were just a few blocks apart. And in a town of fewer than a thousand people, they would have run into each other at the gas station, in the courthouse, at the druggist. But whatever they said, However they felt, that's gone. There are still some clues about what was happening between them. Records we found show that towards the end of his life, Isidore and the sheriff suddenly seem to collide. Financially, anyway. It happened in 1948. In the county tax books, we can see one piece of Isidore's land go delinquent for unpaid bills, then another, then another. And Isidore lost his land over tiny stuff, tax bills of just a few dollars. Without context, if you didn't know what was going on in Crittenden County and across the South at this time, all this might look like a simple case of a farmer in financial trouble. A guy who couldn't pay his taxes. And a sheriff who was just doing his job. But here's the thing about these records. They whitewash history. If you strip beneath that surface, it's terror left, right, and center. Here's Professor Burnham again, talking about what white record-keeping tended to erase and forget. It's women who are subjected to rape without recourse. They can't go to the police. It's people who get uh, arrested because they're Saturday night drunks and who end up beaten in the police station and can't do anything about it. It's uh, an inability to come to court and testify about what happened because you're worried that there are going to be repercussions, and there are going to be repercussions. 
It's terror. When you peel back the surface in Crittenden County, you can find plenty of signs showing what that terror looked like. Sheriff Goodwin was sued for civil rights violations, he was accused of election fraud, and the FBI even looked into him for prisoner abuse. And older folks told us he'd been running an extortion racket, targeting African-American-owned gambling parlors and juke joints. But while Sheriff Goodwin was accused of a lot of things, and some of his close associates were found guilty of crimes, Goodwin himself never went down. In the courthouse basement, we couldn't find hard proof that he was stealing from Isidore or anyone else. Goodwin kept the record books, after all. So what we had was circumstantial evidence, a scatter of dots that seemed to paint a pretty damning picture. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I think it's hard to recreate the world of the pre-civil rights Uh, South in our minds and the way that society really operated. This is Toby Moore. He works for the U.S. Department of Justice, where he specializes in voting rights. And he's one of the few scholars to have studied the role of the Southern sheriff. People forget how rural the South was. I mean, it was so rural. There were so many places that were outside of uh, scrutiny from the state capitol, much less Washington. I mean, this was before the interstates, before you had a lot of oversight, a lot of media. You didn't have the the sort of developed uh, scrutiny of local politics that you have now. It was one party. There was a one-party South, and sheriffs were very powerful because of that. And his power went far beyond policing. From small-time stuff, like being the dog catcher, to influential roles like running elections and collecting taxes and enforcing labor control. They were politicians, you have to remember that. So they were elected, so they were in, uh, ingrained into the political framework. They, they had a lot of what we call social capital, you know, networks and friends and could do reciprocal arrangements with people. These were little fiefdoms. Every county was, especially those that were in rural areas, and sheriffs were very much operating in that. Now, some sheriffs were able to create their own empires in their little uh, counties. And in his empire, Sheriff Goodwin wasn't working alone. He ran the county with a clique of local operators, 
They were lawyers and plantation owners, doctors and engineers, and politicians, too. Sheriff Goodwin and a handful of these guys owned the local newspaper. In elections, they all ran together on the same ticket. And since they got reelected year after year, they controlled everything in the county, from voting booths and jails to banks and construction projects. They even held sway over where, when, and how individual African Americans worked. The South was in a labor crisis increasingly after Reconstruction. People, a lot of the labor had left, moved to the cities in the North, uh, no longer had slavery. You had this kind of uh, tenant and lease of conflict, convicts in many areas. And sheriffs played a key role in that, in enforcing labor control uh, to get people to work in the mills or in the farms. They were the ones who were out actually enforcing the social system that benefited um, the courthouse crowd or the mill owners or the large landowners. In Crittenden County, sheriff's deputies were known to arrest African-American men, guys sitting on their front porches or walking down the street, and force them to work on farms. Sheriff Goodwin himself was a big fan of prison labor. He said it saved the county money. Counties this crooked were called machine counties. And in Arkansas, Crittenden was notorious. One of the most important functions of the county machine was to make sure that white elites stayed on top and that everyone else knew their place. White supremacy was a complicated system, but the sheriff was the, in many counties, the local enforcer of it. Those traditions, uh, they often came down to where you walked or what you wore or who you looked directly in the eye, what stores you went into and through which doors. If we can appreciate the role of the Southern sheriff and other local officials and see uh, Jim Crow and see white supremacy as this complicated system that did not rest solely on laws, but on social traditions and social norms, that may be where we need to focus attention on. And I think understanding the sheriff and how he worked uh, is a window into how uh, society actually operates. If you imagine a huge web and stretch it over the landscape so that it touches each house, every road, all the buildings, and every person, you begin to get a sense of the reach of white supremacy. It touched everything in Crittenden County. And Sheriff Goodwin could pull those threads whenever he wanted. There were instances in which lynchings were prevented by Southern sheriffs who did not want to bring that scrutiny and that uh, attention to their county. Other times it was a blind eye, they didn't investigate, um, sometimes obstructed justice. Um, But in other times they would either not be willing to put their lives on the line to prevent a lynching or were active participants, would uh, turn the keys over to the lynch mob. One question we've had is if the town in which our victim lived was not big at all. And um, the sheriff seems to have initiated an investigation into this lynching But then he says, we haven't been able to find any suspects. And that seems not possible to me in the sense that he was at the center you describe uh, of power, of relationships. Right. Typically in the Southern lynchings, the next morning, everybody in the county knew who had been involved, um, whether it was the local clan or not. Um, So, yeah, that's... 
that's does that sort of defies belief that you wouldn't have at least suspects. Our reporting eventually hit a wall as we tried to see exactly if the sheriff used his power against Isidore. We never found a smoking gun that linked him to Isidore's death, or even to the theft of his land. But we did find someone who remembers what it was like to live under Sheriff Goodwin's rule. Someone who gave us a sense of what it meant to be an ambitious, successful African-American trapped in the web of white supremacy. Did your father ever talk about him? Uh, Isidore? Uh, man, no, not, not a whole bunch, except for that time I saw him crying in the bedroom. This is James Wilburn, Jr. His dad, James Sr., was a businessman and a close friend of Isidore's. I thought everybody was gone, so I went in his room. <laughs> he was in there, standing in front of the mirror, and tears were falling. And it shocked me because I'd never seen my dad cry. He wasn't the affectionate type person. Dad never told me in his entire life that he loved me. We never hugged. We never, you know, anything like that. I know he did, but it just wasn't his, his, his style, you know what I mean? So I said, Dad, you're crying. And he said, I'm just thinking about Isidore, man. And that was it. Like Isidore, James Sr. had a series of successful businesses. And both men were leaders in the community. Isidore Banks is one of the ones who helped bring electricity to Marion, Arkansas. Marion didn't even have lights. My daddy was the first to start garbage pickup in Marion. In 1954, the Wilburn family lived just down the road from Isidore. James's father was a farmer. He also owned a trucking company and a hotel. Dad owned a business, you know, and it was lucrative. I mean, his trucks was running Milwaukee and, and St. Louis and Chicago. He hauled cotton and soybean for just about every major farmer in that area. And Isidore sold him the Black Cat Hotel. James's family lived in the Black Cat Hotel and ran it, too. In the Jim Crow South, African-Americans couldn't eat in white restaurants. They couldn't sleep in white hotels. So they built their own businesses. And white people were always scamming on them, trying to shut them down or buy them cheap. After Isidore was assassinated, uh, lynched, my dad was approached about selling the Black Cat Hotel and selling his trucking company, which he wouldn't do. The Black Cat wasn't just a hotel. It was a destination part of a constellation of African-American clubs, pool halls, and juke joints that glittered along the Mississippi River from St. Louis to New Orleans. It was called the Chitlin Circuit, and some of the era's best artists traveled along it singing the blues. The Black Cat was one stop on the circuit. But James's father didn't own it for very long. Early in the morning, we found ourselves trapped in fire. You know, we were burned out of the Black Cat Hotel. While the family was asleep, someone set the hotel on fire. James and his family escaped, but the building was wrecked. We didn't have a choice after that uh, but to go to Sunset. 
Sunset is a town right next door to Marion. Dad built a house in Sunset, and it was a large house. He wanted to have at least four or five rooms for the musicians who were traveling through. So even after fire gutted his hotel, James's dad was still hosting musicians and putting on shows, and he was still running his trucking company. But soon, that business ran into trouble too. They started stopping his trucks and locking up his drivers, and he had to bail them out. And he believed the sheriff had a lot to do with what was going on. This happened over and over. Cops stopped the trucks. Drivers got thrown into jail. James's dad had to pay to get them out. It was a racket, a pretty common one. But it was bleeding James's dad dry. He, he said, son, I want you to remember that the biggest mistake I ever made was putting my money in Marion Bank, in Citizen Bank at that time. And, you know, and that's what he told me about what broke him. The, the sheriff's, at that time's wife, worked for Citizen Bank or Marion Bank. And uh, she would tell the sheriff how much money daddy had in there. This harassment isn't the kind of thing you'd find in the record books. And neither is what happened next, not too long after James's family had settled into their new home. What I remember was standing outside and watching the house burn down. Another arson attack. A devastating blow to the family and their finances. He lost his money, you know, and doing all of those incidents. And so he, he, he uh, dad went out to a, a, some farm somewhere and found an old, old house and moved it. James's dad had men lift the house onto a flatbed truck and drive it into town and set it on his property. It was a small house. James shared a room with his older brother. And then fire. Again. And it's this place that James remembers most vividly. Dad came in and woke us up. Get up, get up, get up, get up. And, and, and uh, I, you know, I was asleep, man. You know, six years old, you, <laughs> you don't just get up. You know, anyway, I opened my eyes and I couldn't see nothing but fire, man. Just blaze, you know. And he grabbed my brother, Willie, and took him through the house into the breakfast room and dropped him out of the window. He came back at me, but when he got back, one of the rafters in the ceiling fell across my stomach and chest, and I was severely burned. And I remember him picking it up off of me, and you could hear his hand just sizzling like you frying fish or something, you know, just And he threw it off of me, and he took me to the window and threw me out. So then he goes through the house and comes out the front door. Well, when he came out, Mr. Fleming was holding mom's hand. Mr. Fleming was the next door neighbor. When dad came out, Mr. Fleming said, where's Florabelle? Florabelle was my sister. And uh, 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 mom said, she's still in there. So dad turned and then I heard uh, Elijah Maxwell. He's dead now. He said, James, you can't go back in there now. And it was, it was, I mean, part of the house was falling in with fire, you know. Dad ran back in the house. And I remember him saying, he, he's not going to make it out of there. When he said that, mom broke her loose and ran in. And when she did, she swallowed a blaze. By that time, the entire front porch fell in. And I remember them saying, man, they're not going to make it out of there now. <laughs> 
And at that age, you know, being uh, six years old, it seemed like it was forever before, you know, that they were in there. And then all of a sudden, somebody said, look. And I looked up, and Dad had Mom around the waist and had Flora under one arm and was carrying her. And they walked through the fire. Well, none of us knew we were burned as serious as we were burned. I certainly didn't know I was burned that serious. Mom got the worst of it, I believe. We all went to the hospital, but Daddy wouldn't stay. He had a hole in his shoulder where the rafter fell on his shoulder and stuff, you know. Uh, Mom stayed, and they drafted skin from her thighs and calves and put in her face and neck. Mom didn't come out publicly from the first grade to the 12th grade because she was burned so bad and disfigured, you know. Also during that time, my daddy had become an alcoholic because he lost everything he had, you know. The scars James got after the flaming rafter fell across his chest, they're still there, a reminder of the terrorist who burned his family out of their home three times. All of this shows what was tolerated, even encouraged, under Sheriff Goodwin's watch, just like the fires that nearly destroyed James Wilburn's family. It hints at the deep historical ties between American law enforcement and race terror. And we think it also suggests a pattern of behavior that extended to Isidore. But another thought kept nagging at us. In Isidore's case, the record seemed to suggest that Goodwin was carving off pieces of his empire five years before he was murdered. Five years. In other words, it looked like Goodwin was already taking Isidore's land. He didn't need to kill him to get his property. So if the sheriff was involved in Isidore's death, it was probably about something else. On a Monday morning in early June 1954, sheriff's deputies drove out to the spot where Isidore had been lynched. They took an inventory of things they found near his body, a can of gasoline, some heavy steel chains, his black Chevy pickup. Sheriff Goodwin told the local newspaper he was investigating. But then... Less than a month later, the paper stopped writing about the case. Just dropped it. No arrests were ever made, no suspects ever named, no records even exist of any investigation. But there is one thing the sheriff and his pals did claim to know for certain. They insisted that Isidore's killing wasn't a lynching, that it had nothing to do with race. But here's the thing. In the Jim Crow South, everything was about race, especially in the spring of 1954. Today's decision by the U.S. Supreme Court is called the most important action of its kind since the Emancipation Proclamation. Our high tribunal today... In May 1954, the Supreme Court struck down segregation in the landmark decision of Brown versus Board of Education. The reaction in the South is immediate and it's angry with new proposals to transform the public schools into a private school system there. A technical term, mostly, but... And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. The Brown decision was the biggest threat to white supremacy since the Civil War. Almost immediately afterward, a backlash swept through the South. There were protests, bombings, fires. And in Crittenden County, the Brown decision threatened to bring Sheriff Goodwin's kingdom crashing down. And just three weeks later... Isidore Banks was lynched, 
next time on Unfinished, Deep South. I said, my father's very, very skillful at fighting. This guy told him, this white guy told him, you'll, you'll pay for this, you'll die. You'll die, you're a dead man, you're a walking dead man. Unfinished Deep South is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher and Market Road Films. Written and produced by us, Taylor Hom and Neil Shea. Editing by Peter Clowney, Gianna Palmer, and Tracy Samuelson. The show is produced by Laura Kalaluri and Stephanie Kariuki. Our executive producers are Lynn Nottage, Tony Gerber, Peter Clowney, and Chris Bannon. Our mixing engineer is Casey Holford. Deep South features blues, folk, and gospel music performed by Hubby Jenkins. Original theme music and score by Casey Holford, with musicians Ryan Thornton and Dan Costello. Thanks to our fact-checker, Soraya Shockley. Special thanks to the extended family of East Door Banks, who gave generously of their time, their patience, and their memories. Thanks also to Professor Margaret Burnham and the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern University, to Willie Gammon, and to the 78 Project. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. You gotta move, you gotta move, you gotta move, child, you gotta move, cause when the Lord, he gets ready, you gotta move. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.